You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 171 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Reinhard Danke. Check out his new book called It's a Wonderful Time. And it's quite apropos since this is the big time Christmas episode. And the book is about time travel as well as the film It's a Wonderful Life. Essentially, the best Christmas film about attempting suicide out there this last hundred years. But the pressure to actually say something kind of like Christmassy or whatever on this app on here is it's too intense. Um, what's interesting is is I'm transcribing some of my journals and into my computer because I handwrite my journals. And I was transcribing, and I just got to December 31st, 2019. At the time, I was in a relationship, and we were having troubles, and it was one of those pivotal moments where you go, is this worth it? Not that I remember exactly, but as I'm reading through my journal entries, I was quite a wreck. So back to my journal entry on December 31st, 2019. And I'm... I'm usually really long-winded when I'm writing in my journal. Two to three pages, sometimes more, every day. So here is my full journal entry for December 31st, 2019. Decade ends, into the 20s, I feel bloated. That's the full entry. (laughs) I remember I was in San Francisco. I didn't go out that night on purpose. I usually don't go out on New Year's Eve because I don't like playing bumper cars with the drunks or manufacturing some type of emotion with people who hate their lives because they're stuck in some miserable job so they feel the need to tear it up in San Francisco. Hey, babe, you have the night off from Hooters and I've been working this boring vaccine analyst job at Moderna for years, and all I do is hypothetical scenarios on possible illnesses that will never, ever happen. So tonight, December 31st, 2019, let's go to San Francisco. Let's get sloppy drunk. Let's puke at 1.30 a.m. on Tony Duchesne's stoop. I wonder if that vaccine analyst's wife was able to quit her job at Hooters because he scored some awesome bonuses from Moderna. I wonder if this year, for New Year's Eve, they'll go to Hooters instead of San Francisco just to shove their newfound fortune and fame into everybody's tits. This is Reinhard Danka, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we, had Re- we have Reinhard Danka. He's the author, co-author of It's a Wonderful Time. It's part of the Hollywood time travel series with Doug Stebbleton. Did I say Doug's name right? Yes. Yes, you did. How are you doing, Reinhard? I'm very well today. Thank you, Tony. Everything Is- okay over there? Oh, in my brain or in the environment? the environment and your brain i think i think think we're in climate crisis and we're in existential crisis so it's just all crisis hey i have to pay you a compliment do you know who resembles you quite a bit or who did um other than tom cruise hello no i'm kidding yeah 
No, I, I, I was just thinking to myself, you, you look a lot like um, uh, Vince Giraldi, the, the, um, the composer, uh, you know, the jazz musician who did the music for Charlie Brown's Christmas. Oh, really? Um, uh, San Francisco jazz musician had, um, um, you know, he, he passed away very young at 47, but you- Oh, great. You, you gave me another funny. crisis. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think his habits were a little uh, a little uh, different than yours. <laughs> he, every picture I've seen of him, he's always got a cigarette in his hand. Oh, no. Way. Oh, okay. Yeah, those, you know, those poor guys, you know, when they're smoking like four packs a day going, this won't get me. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. <laughs> I'll be fine. Yeah, I remember a recent interview with John Lennon. It was one of the last interviews he gave. And, and, and he said, well, I'm macrobiotic. And, and, you know, we don't believe in the big C. So I can smoke as much as I like. That's not what's going to kill me. And it's sad because just like two days later, it was something else entirely. Yeah. The thing you don't, you never think of, you know, that's the last thing that's going to happen is some crazed assassin who thinks he's you, you know, right. steps out of the shadows. And he was killed by the big C, but the C was a C-U-N-T. Yeah, C-U-N-T. <laughs> explanation point yeah. Yeah. Th thanks dickhead yeah <laughs> now everyone's parole i'm better now yeah. Um, yeah yeah i have two more to i have two more to take out you know <laughs> what do you do with a guy like that just keep him in the slammer he destroyed our he destroyed our childhoods oh you know it just i mean did, did he get out of prison no but, oh, okay. but john hinkley did Hinkley, but Hinkley, oh. you know, um, the one that tried to kill Reagan, but he was in a mental institution. He wasn't in prison. I, I, I got to say, you know, uh, hey, if, if he would have succeeded with Reagan, we could be in a different place now. I mean, anytime, <laughs> anytime there's a presidential assassination, there's always the what if. What if Lincoln had not been assassinated? Would Reconstruction have not been as harsh? Oh. What, what if we, if Kennedy had, had lived? Would we have pulled out of Vietnam? You know? Yeah. If, if Reagan had been assassinated, what would have happened with the 80s? It just, it would have been, well, George H.W. Bush would have been president. Uh, that, so, yeah, and that was a problem when he was. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, it just would have, uh, you know, his term would have ended earlier. That, that's all. <laughs> the, um, and, and, and I like how you say the what ifs, because I love books about time travel. And your book, It's a Wonderful Time. It, it's I, it, time travel always, you know, if we can shift time, there's always the what if. What would have happened? Yeah. What if? And that, that question excites me to no end. Well, and, and the other thing is, how do we, you know, and I'm not crazy. Okay. So, but I, I do think these things. This morning, I swore I had a, a pile of pocket handkerchiefs that go, you know, the kind that go in your jacket and they're gone. And then the, the coats that I put them in, they're gone too. And then, of course, it crosses my mind. What if someone went back in time and changed one tiny thing and now all my pocket handkerchiefs are gone? There's that great, uh, I think it's Ray Bradbury had a short story back in, it was, I think it was the 50s or 60s, and it was about these time travelers. And, and what it was, it was, it, was, it was set in the future, and you could go back in time and hunt dinosaurs. But they had tracked down which dinosaurs were already going to die. So the hunter could take out a dinosaur that was already on its last legs. And the rules were this. You cannot touch anything when you go to the prehistoric land. You can only shoot the dinosaur and return. 
And so uh, in this hunting party, one guy steps on a butterfly or an insect of some kind. And when he comes back to the present day, all the lettering and the language is different. You know, so there's a lot of truth. <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that, though. It's 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 um, the, if one thing changes, I mean, it's and this has come up way too much lately, probably because I'm so excited. Baseball season happened and we didn't have it last year. But yeah. <clears throat> if the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers had first choice and they went to San Francisco and said, and they were like, do you want San Francisco? And they said, no, we'll take LA. And from then on, there's generations of people who are like, like me, where I'm like, the Dodgers must die like the scum they are. Cause I'm from San Francisco. Right. Even though, but I kind of enjoy the rivalry. I do it in a playful way, you know, and people, people in LA say I bleed blue. And it's just like, they would have been bleeding orange if that one decision was different. One decision and, in 1958. That's all it was. And, yeah. and, and it's weird to think now, especially I'm a baseball fan as well, of New York City with three teams. You know, that's yeah. really extraordinary. Yeah. Contemplate. I mean, you have three and they were good. You know, yeah. it's not like there was a clunker in the bunch. You know, they were all really good. Yeah. It's it, and it, it's it's all these. It's all, it, I think it's, it just still blows my mind. And I was thinking about it this week. That's why it's blowing my mind. Cause someone, uh, I was talking to someone and they said, isn't it crazy that that one decision changed all of our lives. And I was like, and I kept thinking about, it. I'm like, you know what? No, it's not because one decision changes our lives constantly. One, one decision by a person somewhere. It's like, why are we living? In, why is Los Angeles a city? It could have been Bakersfield. Right. <laughs> it's just like, it, it, What's the decision, you know, back then? And, and, and what if, uh, you know, those filmmakers in the in the early 1900s and the teens getting away from Edison, what if they decided instead of moving to Los Angeles, what if they moved to Arizona? Yeah. What would have happened? Because, you know, what they needed was good weather. Yeah. Sunshine and, 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 and away from Edison. That's all they needed. And they ended up, they were in Arizona, apparently at first they made some Westerns, but then they, they moved to Hollywood because the weather was nicer. It was cooler, but they had sunshine most of the year. That, that was, it, it's so funny that that one decision, little did they know they were building a Mecca in the desert of California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and they had, I mean, they didn't even, it's funny how those, those studio executives back then, you know, they all came from disparate backgrounds. I think Samuel Goldwyn was a glove salesman and, Louis B. Mayer was a was a salvage diver. He was, you know, go dive on wrecks and bring up scrap metal. And these guys got into running these huge empires that now are so big, you, you wouldn't even recognize them. Could you imagine Walt Disney coming back to life and looking at this gigantic thing that used to just be a, a little studio that made some TV shows and, yeah. and, and the occasional animated musical? And, 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 and of course... I, I don't, I mean, he, he, he was a futurist and Disneyland, he, he was looking beyond and I guess they, they say that he was planning Epcot Center and stuff like that, but I don't think he ever imagined a cruise line or right. um, uh, buying up all those franchises because he was very narrow in, in the sort of entertainment that he did. And we probably grew up watching the wonderful <clears throat> Disney every Sunday night. Yes. Oh, I, re so, I remember waiting for that. Yeah. So the, and there was the, movies made for kids. Back yeah. when we back when we would wait for I don't I don't remember what 
time it came on, like seven o'clock or something, but we would wait for the top of that hour. And people yeah. don't people don't have that joy. They they don't have the countdown anymore with streaming services or whatever. It's like, okay, what are you gonna watch? Click, click, click. Yeah. Back then it was like, it's only six o'clock. We got an hour till Disney. What do we do for the next hour? Yeah, <laughs> we, we have to kill it slowly. I'm you know, I'll never forget when I was in I guess second or third grade, there was this popular show that all the kids loved from Britain called UFO. Oh. And it was done by a, 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 a brilliant British producer named Gary Anderson, who also did the Thunderbirds. You know, he did those marionettes, but UFO was live action. And, and it was the season finale of the first season of UFO. And, you know, in those days, broadcast stations, for whatever reason, they just preempt the show. They, just, they wouldn't show it because they weren't bound by any rules. And this was the independent channel that was showing BBC programs. And... I, I was so excited that day, Tony. I couldn't wait. You know, I had that last hour where every minute crawled by. I ran, put on TV, and it was roller derby. They had decided to preempt everything with roller derby. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. How could you do that to me? I was ruined. I, I mean, that whole night was ruined. See, I don't think anybody has that experience anymore. And I think that's why sometimes, and maybe I'm wrong. Well, maybe that's sometimes and uh, you have so much excitement about a live show. Yeah. Um, because that's the one performance. It'll never be the same. Right. That one performance of Hamilton or Jagged Little Pill or, you know, whatever band is playing. That's going to be it. No, it's like a fingerprint or a, or a snowflake. There'll never be another like it. Uh-huh. And with streaming, I mean, the, the joy of, of visual entertainment, while it remains... It's different. I mean, I I did have an experience on Friday night, I have to share, that sort of renewed my my um, my faith in cinema. Oh, oh, please. okay. wait, can we just have a few seconds of anticipation? Because I can't wait to hear this because I want my faith renewed. Okay, it wasn't so much the movie as the audience. All right. All right. All right. I have seen I can tell you some good ones to see. I man, check out Nightmare Alley when you get a chance. It's a beautiful remake of a 1947 noir film. And um, oh, cool. He did, he did such a good job. Um, uh, Benicio, not Benicio, geez, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro did such oh, a, yes. a loving yes. job of an old film. And he just expanded it and made it bigger. I want to just I, hug him one day. I mean, it, I, I know. I, it, I, he doesn't let me hug him yet. I, we're not there. But maybe one day. <laughs> but the day will come. It'll be a happy day. And, and it'll come. And, and, and I have to say, that the great thing about Guillermo del Toro is he loves movies. I mean, the love of cinema that he has, because he's very knowledgeable about it. And when you watch um, Nightmare Alley, there, there's something coming up that I was just told about yesterday that I can't wait. When you watch the film, it has an interesting tint to it. The colors and everything. I kept thinking... Man, this, this, I've never seen a movie that looks like this before. Has it? Well, apparently he shot it in color so it can be transferred to black and white. Huh. And, and a black and white version is coming out. Cool. Which is fascinating because, you know, they, it takes place in the early 19, late 1930s, early 1940s. And they really take advantage of the, um, the, the deco and the, the cars and the, you know, every, all the guys wear suits and ties and smoke filterless cigarettes and the women wear these beautiful cocktail gowns. And they really take advantage of just the, just the, the, the aesthetic of early 1940s. 
And that's why my faith stays alive because of the Guillermo del Toro's out there that are, you know, you you can pump out a film, you can cut, you can cut uh, corners to to get the butt, you know, all these things, but there's such a specific, um, what do you call it? Vision. Yeah. And that, and that vision. And, and that's when it's great. And even if it, even if a film sucks, if the, if you feel that vision, you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. We, we, it's still out there. It's, yeah. it's still magic. Oh, I, I felt it. But I was just going to tell you that the cinema experience I had, again, it, it's a Marvel movie. I saw Spider-Man mm-hmm. on Friday. My son's in town from college. So he likes to go to the movies. Tony, it was a full house. I have not seen that in two years. Oh, my God. Oh, bless Several everybody's Several people hearts. were dressed. Yeah, and bless. And you know what? Bless these guys. So there were several people dressed like Spider-Man. Yeah. And every time an actor would come on screen, everybody would cheer. Oh. And, and the love of that audience for that movie and the cheering and the laughing. And, and, and at the end, everybody stood up and applauded. I thought, it's back. They you know, stood and applauded. Wait, there was a there was a standing ovation and applause. Standing I don't, ovation. I don't think I've I have seen. not seen that. The last time I saw that, I'll be honest with you. The last time I saw people cheering a movie was Wolf of Wall Street. When I saw it, wow. uh, people started cheering at the end huh. because it's one of and, and then <sighs> years before Pulp Fiction because <laughs> how can you how can you not? <laughs> oh my God! I we saw I saw Pulp Fiction opening weekend and I remember you know I saw Reservoir Dogs and I was just like oh cool let's see let's see what else this guy can do right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. John Travolta's a junkie. Let's let's see what let's see what this guy did with that. <laughs> Vincent Vega. Yeah, and I, and I remember seeing it at the movies and loving it and adoring it, but like the first weekend it was kind of a little bit more of a question like. Like what? Ju- what just happened? I saw it in San Francisco, but it was kind of like that was great, but wow! It was almost like it was almost like we got kicked in the stomach, and we had to like watch it a couple more times before yeah. uh, we got it. You know? Yeah, I agree. And and and, and you know what? I, I I have to amend my statement. When I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I saw it in Calabasas, and people cheered. Oh yeah, I saw it at the um, New Beverly just, opening night, and it was every, it yeah. was yeah. Well. It, it's a, it pulls at your heart because yeah. if those if those nice people hadn't been killed like that, that's a nice, talk about changing uh, yeah. time travel. Where was Cliff Booth? Where was Cliff Booth in, in on August 6, nineteen sixty or August eighth, nineteen sixty nine? Where was Cliff Booth? I don't. Right. Think he should have been there. Yeah, <laughs> and he should have looked like Brad Pitt. <laughs> and he should have looked like Brad Pitt. He could have protected. Them. How does a guy like when when that film was shot? What was he like, 51, 52? and he still has like eight pack abs? Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, I I don't I think yeah, I think he's been cloned. How how does that happen? I know there's some kind of genetic thing going on there. It's, it's beyond explanation. Him and because, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, they 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 frozen in time what? for thirty years. I mean, yeah. we've grown up with these guys, and they're the same. Yeah. You know, I mean, is Mark Wahlberg, he's a little, I mean, he's a little heavier than he was in Boogie Nights. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, he's got the same face, the same hair, you know, same with yeah. Brad Pitt. The same hair. How that's, hey, you know, you just hit on a huge point. Same hair, same abs. That, yeah. I don't know what that is, but someone could have stepped on a butterfly in 1864 and go. 
there would have been a bald Wahlberg with the same abs, yeah. and he would just be a character actor, kind of getting a lot of work. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. He would just be a, he would one of those interesting character actors. Right. You know. No, but he keeps I mean, his goddamn bald. hair, and he's a huge star. <laughs> But you know, bald. It worked for Bruce Willis. He went from being a guy with yeah. hair to a guy with no hair, and he's and, better and just, without hair. I yeah, like him better. He's a little cooler looking without hair. Yeah. Um, um. And 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 now he can play bad guys. For the longest time, he was just a a leading man, and now he can play bad guys with no hair. Wasn't it interesting? It's so funny because we're in the like Christmas season, and you know, Die Hard's showing all over the place, and and the, and I and and it's just like that was the guy from Moonlighting. That was the guy that was given the wink and the nod to the camera on moonlighting. And then all of a sudden it's like, let's put him in an action movie. Well, and yeah, and it was extraordinary too, because if I recall, he was in a movie before with Kim Basinger called Blind Date. That, that <laughs> right. did not go over well. It did not go over well. It got horrible reviews. People thought, oh, here's another TV actor mm. trying to do something he's not capable of doing. And, with John Larroquette. That's right. With John Larroquette. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then he does Die Hard, and no one expected it. Now, didn't Die Hard though? Didn't it come out? Did it come out over Christmas? I can't remember. I, I remember I seeing a trailer of it. I don't remember either. But I don't know what it was that. I mean, that movie. It's like it's weird because how everything has to kind of. It's the lucky hit, you know. It kind of has to hit at the right time. It's got to be the right film team. It has to be the right actor, and just to produce that that thing where now it's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing, Tony, I, I'll add, you got to have a great bad guy in every yes. story you need. And Hans Gruber is probably as good, if not better than most Bond villains. And yes. he dresses well. He has good quips. He's, he's interesting. <laughs> he's, yeah. He, he, yeah, he's very amusing and funny. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I have to admit. Sometimes I watch uh, Die Hard, and I root for Hans Gruber. I want him to succeed because he's just taking money from some big corporation. You know, even though he killed a lot of people to do it, I guess that makes him <laughs> the morality of that. <laughs> yeah, like, that part, of, that part aside, but you know, big business is but he's more interesting. <laughs> yeah, he's more interesting than John McClane. John McClane is kind of you know, but then, but then they they develop John McClane, and now he's basically. He's this, he's like a super soldier. I mean, he's like Captain America. He's unstoppable. Yeah. You know, in the last movies, he does all these crazy things that are, uh, I mean, uh, Batman worthy. You know, and it, and like, even, you know, even when, when sequels a bad word, but when, um, with the one with Samuel L. Jackson that he did was that one probably is, better than Die Hard. That one is incredible. I mean, yeah. Die Hard 3 with those East Germans taking over the, the, the New York Federal Reserve Bank to yeah. take all the gold. I mean, that's fantastic. You know, and Jeremy Irons is the bad guy. Right. There's a, and the bad, and that's what intrigues me a lot is the, the, better, the better the bad guy, the more interesting the movie. Yeah. Like even in the James Bond movies and uh, other, or even in Mission Impossible films, that villain better be more three-dimensional than your hero almost. Absolutely. I mean, that's why the one that I, the Bond film I always think about um, in, in terms of being memorable, I, Goldfinger to this day gets me because Art Goldfinger was an easy bad guy. He just wanted all the gold in the world. That's it. He wanted all the gold in the world to be his almost like something from Greek mythology. 
And he was willing to do anything he could to make the gold his, including, you know, irradiating all the gold in Fort Knox so that his gold would become the gold standard of the world, yeah. you know, or his reserve would become the, the gold reserve of the world. So anyways, I, 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 I like gold, even though he's kind of roly poly and balding and, you know, he, he had a scary henchman. Uh-huh. And he was surrounded with uh, people who were pretty good at what they did. Hey, they got an atomic bomb. You know, that's not, that's not everybody they can get one of those. I don't think I've ever seen Goldfinger. I'm going to have to watch Goldfinger this week when I'm uh, Netflix. Oh, man. That's a, it's John Connery and, and um, oh, my gosh. And, and Honor Blackman. It's, it's, huh. it's phenomenal. All right. That's on my list. Good. <laughs> and then, Good. And then, and then, um, and then uh, a film like you tackled in your book, It's a Wonderful Life. It's, you know, I saw, I haven't seen that movie, like, um, I hadn't seen it in full in over a decade. And I went on Christmas uh, Christmas Eve or whatever about four years ago and watched it at the Vista in Los Feliz. That's a dark film. That it was way, I could, I was like, I, you keep forgetting how dark that film is. And the, and the clips we remember are like the third act. <laughs> It's yeah, so, it's like like, everybody remembers people bringing in money at the end. Well, that's saying, it. George, the biggest man in town. They always remember that. They they don't remember Pottersville and what <sighs> happened to all those people, you know, and Iris becoming basically a floozy and, and Bert and Ernie becoming these hardened, creepy guys. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a, and yeah. And, and there's a certain I mean, we, we tried to do it in the book, uh, Doug and I, with the. Um, um, that look on Jimmy or George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's face when he realizes what's happened, that look of just uh, not just astonishment, but he's horrified as he looks yeah. around Potterville and he goes, Clarence, get me out of here. You know, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think a lot of times, I mean, and we try to bring this out in the book. Jimmy Stewart had just been through World War II as a pilot in the 8th Air Force um, flying B-24s over Germany. And those raids uh, those guys flew were uh, horrific. Civil War level casualties. Um, I think they said a British bomber command, 50% never came home. And with uh, the American 8th and 15th Air Force, I think it was uh, 40% didn't come home. So you, you, you were in a flying coffin in those things. They were slow. Uh, you had flat, the Germans had radar controlled flat guns. And they had fighters and uh, the fighter knew what he was doing. I mean, they, they go up and, and, and they would just blow those guys out of the sky. Um, and, and apparently Jimmy Stewart was deeply affected by that stuff and came home with what now you'd call PTSD. He had a hard time keeping weight on because, you know, he looks unnaturally thin in that movie. So yeah. It seems. And, 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 and some of the unnaturally thin makes him look great in those suits. <laughs> well, because he's, he's supposed to be 21. At, yeah. at, at, in, in, in the opening scene. Right. Not, he's, not, he's, boy. he's supposed to be a bit, and he was, I think, 38 when they made that. Wow. So, um, I, I think what, what he saw over there really affected him. And if you look at his acting before It's a Wonderful Life in Philadelphia's story, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, there's a certain innocence. Hmm. And after 1946, I don't see that anymore. Especially when you look at movies like Naked Spur, uh, Man from Laramie, uh, not Man from Laramie, excuse me, Winchester 73, um, even Fly to the Phoenix, you see a, a hard man. Yeah. And um, a lot of those actors back then who went to World War II 
uh, certainly Clark Gable, Robert Mitchum, they came back from that thing much different than, huh. than you know, b- before they left. And that comes through in Jim- Jimmy Stewart's performance. And also Frank Capra, there's a level of sophistication of his filmmaking in that. Mm-hmm. That remember, he, he shot all the Why We Fight, uh, or not all of them, but a lot of the uh, films for the, um, for the army, for, well, for the armed services. And, and he was, I, I mean, I guess legend has it, he was at Dachau when it was uh, liberated. Well, you see something like that, you'll never be the same. Yeah. And that's, that's a little too much for most people to take in. And um, uh, I think that's what gives that, that darkness to its wonderful life because this was the post war audience. And post-war audiences are the people who really love noir. And you can almost look at It's a Wonderful Life, especially certain sections of it, as film noir. Um, all the scenes after the attempted suicide and the introduction of Clarence, yes, Clarence is cute. Clarence is funny. But what he shows, George, is pretty damn ugly. And, um, you know, it's the question all of us have. What if I, what if I never been born? You know, maybe the, maybe the world would be better. And I think the lesson, is, <laughs> the lesson is that uh, I, I think that's not the case. Um, I'm so deluded. I'm like, what if I wasn't born? This poor world would suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just talking about people who feel sorry for themselves. You know, oh, no, so don't worry. I feel born, sorry for myself. <laughs> that doesn't get out of the way. <laughs> Thank God I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and so when, when, when we, you know, Doug, it, this is, it was originally Doug Stebbleton's idea, and he'd had this thing around for years, uh, and he had written it as a screenplay, and I had read that screenplay, and, you know, I, I thought it was pretty good. The screenplays, though, you know how it is. You write yeah. screenplays for the rest of your life, and nothing's going to happen with them. I mean, uh, Guillermo del Toro, what did he say in a recent interview? He had written, God, how many movies was he said he He'd done 15, 20 screenplays. Nothing happened with him. I mean, yeah, I, I went through that. You know, I because I, I'm, 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 I'm mostly a screenwriter. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the first book I've ever uh, attempted. And, um, and and TV shows, none of, some of the movies got made, none of the TV shows did. But, but you know, you could make a perfectly good living as a writer, working away, and uh, nothing gets made. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. And, and people know your work because it gets... It gets passed around within the, you know, insider baseball community. Right. But then, um, and, oh, yeah, you're the guy that wrote this or that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's get you. But um, 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 certainly, uh, anyways, Doug had written this as a screenplay. And he had, he, he wanted it to be a book. And uh, he had re- read some stuff of mine that took place in the 1940s. So he knew that I was comfortable with the, with the, with the period. And uh, I thought, what have I got to lose? I'll write, with, I'll write a story, you know, I'll write with Doug, we'll write a, a book. I've never done that before. And for me, Tony, I, you, you, are a, you are a purveyor of literature. You are a, you're a fan of literature, as am I. I love mm-hmm. books. But I had never realized the liberation as a writer, you feel, writing books as opposed to movie scripts. Movie scripts follow a very strict act structure, page count certain numbers of characters. And when you're dealing with budget, you have to give and take what you can do within the, fra- the, the framework of the budget. And, um, you know, you need to write the parts, snappy dialogue, quick descriptions that keep the reader engaged. Yeah. And you have to show everything. You can't ever, you know, just, um, 
you can't ever just uh, um, have have a character start talking to themselves, you know? Yeah. And um, what was so wonderful about writing a book was I can do everything. I can go into the character's mindset. I can go into what the character's wants and hopes are, their dreams. I can talk about incidents that happened in the past. I can talk about things that might happen in the future. And 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 I, 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 I'm a huge fan of both Stephen King and James Elroy. And mm. they do that uh, very, and James Patterson, Harlan Coben, they do this so well, how they go inside of a character and show what they're thinking, show what their motivations are, talk about, like, I remember in um, uh, LA Confidential, uh, Bud White hated men that preyed on women because his dad killed his mom in front of him. Okay, when he was five or something like that. And that explains Bud White. Now, it's interesting, the movie version of that, Bud White was Russell Crowe, and he was very slender. You know, muscular, but slender, but a badass. In the book, he's enormous. He's this, like a linebacker. He's this huge man, you know, with a badge. But, yeah. you know, I mean, but that, that's the joy of, you know, going back and forth being filmed in books. But, you know, uh, Stephen King does it best. He, he really makes characters come alive on the page and doesn't matter what genre he's in because he, he does alternate, you know, he's very fluid with his genres. Yeah. And, and, and so there was a little bit of that in, in this book with the, um, with, with the character uh, Huckabee, uh, the ghost that um, our, our lead keeps seeing, you know, Evan keeps seeing this ghost of a, of a mass killer. Well, really what you were just talking about earlier, I, you know, that we, we go into this whole thing about, well, you, you can visit an, 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 another time, but you can't stay there because yeah. you'll disrupt too much. And, and you're, a basic, you're a virus and the time itself will, will throw you out. Yeah. And so that's why Coop is growing extra digits on his hands and toes. And, and Evan is slowly going crazy because, yeah. because they, they're not meant to be there. They have to leave. And of course, that, that, that brings in the heartbreak with Dorothy and, um, uh, you know, him leaving everything that he loves because he's a man of the past. He, he doesn't like social media. He doesn't like current day movies. You know, yeah. he, his heart beats for uh, things that happened a long time ago. But then once he gets there, he sees the past is just as scary and tumultuous as the present that he hated so much. It's just a different kind of tumult. It's interesting when you're there, you know, we have the glamorization of like things like the 1980s, say the 1980s and the 1990s oh, yeah. that, that yeah. I lived through. And there's the, gla there's the glamour part of it, but you go back and you're like, uh, to people who weren't born then you're like, Oh, you don't remember the day to day. And even, even the, um, even trying to get a job in 1990, I was like, yeah. it, it yeah. was, it was dark. It was, you would go to try to, I was like a waiter in those days. Yeah. I'd be, I was like, I'll be a waiter or bus boy, anything you need. I need money. And yeah. there were 50 people there to apply for the job. It was. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I just remember, and I was, I was doing college radio at the time, you know, and that's just, that's just a bunch of geeks who do stuff for free, you know, yeah. cause they love it, but we're all trying to figure out, you know, what, how are you making six dollars an hour because i need to figure that out because my gas tank gets empty sometimes as i'm driving over you know it's like <laughs> yeah yeah when, when i think about it when i think about those times yeah there, there, it was just the same stress it was just yeah. different I mean, 
I mean, one of the things I remember that, that I was always stressed out about because I had moved to Los Angeles from, from Texas to go to grad school at USC and um, was finding my way around. You know, there's always that stress. I had those things. What were they called? Thomas, Thomas Guide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Guide. And I'd be, I'd be looking at the Thomas Guide driving and looking right. look at the Thomas Guide. Oh, my God. Oh, I missed the turn. And, and being from Texas where there's parking everywhere, always parking. Everything's easy. You know, here, everything costs money. So there was yeah. that stress of having an entry-level job and not having, never having enough money. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, I, it's funny how, how you look back on it. And we romanticize it because certain aspects of our culture now weren't in evidence then in evidence then. But and the music was better. I mean, let's let's be honest. But <laughs> yeah. same I, time, I think the only thing the only thing that's gotten better since like the last 40 years is hip hop. <laughs> Other than that, I don't th- I don't think we've done anything better. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, the hip hop has evolved. And, and it's gotten much better, but I, I still like the old stuff too. Yeah. You know, and, but, but when it comes to lots of other music, I, I mean, it was funny. I was, I, I, there was another project I was working on. I was listening to country music from the seventies. It's awesome. I mean, I mean, all that stuff by Willie Nelson and Waylon oh, Jennings and yeah. Charlie Rich, that stuff's fantastic. Loretta Lynn. And I listen to it now and it just sounds like seventies era pop songs. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have that same, and maybe it's just me, you know, I, I'm, I'm wrong about most, most things, but, uh, but when I, you listen to that, and it could be also, cause I, I remember that, you know, and that, that was songs I, when I was a little kid, I remember that stuff. I remember my dad buying a, um, Willie Nelson eight track. And I'm just like, well, there's an old man. You know, yeah. it's just like that guy's old as dirt you know and then now he's just like uh, he's still around i'm way older than he was on that eight track <laughs> same with Abe pagoda wow what an old right. man like, he's so old he's on barney miller he's so old and then suddenly and then i read he dies in what 2016 it's like what wait, wait a minute what was he like 150 yeah yeah <laughs> No, no, you look at some he was of old in the Godfather. I it's yeah, and you I watched some of these. Um, what, what oh, I was watching something recently, and I was like, these people are still old to me, but they're like 15 years younger than I was than I am when they shot this, but they still yeah. are old to me. They're like, I don't know what it is, I can't fathom being older than them. I well, listen, here's the thing that always strikes me I think to myself, okay, in the 70s. World War II was 30 years ago, and it seems so long ago. World yeah. War II was so long ago. Now we're out of Vietnam 50 years. It's like, wow, wait a minute. Yeah. How can we be out of Vietnam? Vietnam just happened. Yeah. How can that be 50 years ago? No, the, you know? it's like the 20th anniversary of 9 11. I'm like, I thought 9 11 was last year. I thought that was yesterday. Yeah. What? I'm just thinking about it. And then there's, there's there's kids that are like 30 years old that are like, oh yeah, I was nine when that happened. And then you're going, what? Yeah, how could you be nine then? I thought everybody was a grown-up during that. Right. Nobody was young back then. Not even me. No, exactly. Yeah, um, no, but there was a certain glamorization of, I think, especially when you look at old movies and, I, and I'm, a, I'm an enormous fan of, of all of it, you know, and it, just the way everybody looked and the, like we were talking about nightmare alley, you know, 
all, all the great clothes and how everybody dressed so well and the, the way the cars looked. And, but it, when, when you think about it, life was so much harder. You know, if you've yeah. ever driven an antique car, it's like driving a tractor. Yeah. You know, you, it, it's, these, it's these gears and they're heavy and there's no power steering and you have to manhandle them around and, um, and no blinkers. You know, you have to do the hand signals. The brakes are mechanical. They're not uh, like the uh, hydraulic or disc brakes. <laughs> I, I used to not to be able to afford getting new brakes, so I would downshift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's smart, that's man. I, I did that, too. I yeah, did that yeah. Too. <laughs> they would go, oh, your, your rotor pads are I need to be replaced. How much is that? $800. I'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I got a clutch. We can go to second. <laughs> I'll just download. I'll just downshift rather. But yeah, and, and because I, I have an anti car, and and the first few times I drove it with mechanical brakes, it's this. It's a totally different sensation, Tony. So, you know, it's you, as soon as you put your foot in the brake, it's like it's not going to stop. Yeah. It's not going to stop because the car is not comes to a, it comes to a very gradual stop, and then eventually yeah. it does stop, and you just have to think in a different way. You have to yeah. think in a totally different way. But, you know, think about that. You know, the beds weren't that soft back then. Um, uh, soap was harsh. Shaving was with a straight razor or with, you know, those old safety razors, safety razors. <laughs> I mean, everything about that era that the food was, well, I, I alluded in the book that the food tasted better. I, I think it probably did simply because it didn't have any artificial ingredients. And, and, it, was coming, and it was coming to us from closer locales. Yeah. Yeah, even like, I mean, you, you're old enough to remember Coca-Cola before they used corn syrup. Yeah. I mean, it used to have quite a flavor to it. it I'm so really old, I remember game. cocaine and Coke. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Damn that Roosevelt for getting rid of it. <laughs> but let's also, you know what blows my mind? And this like blew my mind this last week. A lot of things blow my mind. And then, so anyway... I, I was looking oh, no, at, I'm, I was I'm right there with you. I'm, I was looking I'm at my Yeah, I was looking at my iPhone and I was noticing um I was at the doctor's office and I was noticing everyone had an iPhone. And it's the the I we have, we have a computer in our hand mm-hmm. which is crazy uh, to think about. And but it's the norm. And so it's kind of like the status quo now. If you don't have that, you can't even you, if you don't have that, you, it's almost like you can't even go into a restaurant and show your vaccination card in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, and you can't. Yeah. I mean, think about this. Remember Star Trek? Yeah. That is a communicator and a tricorder all in one. Yeah. And that was that was just like, that's never going to happen. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> oh, when are they ever going to have communicate? The, the one thing I wish they would figure out is the, is, is the uh, transporter device. I, I I think we need transporters. We really do. I have been with you on that since I was, <laughs> when I hit puberty, I wanted to be transported to the girl's uh, room that I loved. So I, so we can just hang out and talk. I wanted yeah. to be, you know, that's, I, yeah. I wanted, well, I grew up in a very weird way in a strict religion. So even having access to the woman I love needed like 20 chaperones and a good shame sodomy. Oh. But, but it, so, but that was my idea of a transporter, but, but going back to the iPhone, what's interesting is it's like, we all kind of need to be in the same struggle, I think. So when, when there was those cars in those days and there was no power steering, it wasn't a problem. 
because we were all in the we all we all didn't have power. Standards. Everybody was in the same boat. Yeah. And and you know maybe maybe fifty years from now it's self driving cars and people will be like, remember the struggle of trying to steer, you know? And it's just like, but we're not thinking of the struggle of trying to steer because all of us are trying to steer. It's it's just almost like yeah. a bird thing, you know? It's yeah, it's not true. a problem. It's not a and then it, it'll be a problem like down the road, you know. Gosh, man, I, I and I, I recall this too. When I, I I moved from Texas to go to school out here in the late eighties, I, I couldn't but I I couldn't wrap my head around the answer machine. It was like, yes. well, if someone calls you, you're not at home. You don't call them back. Big deal. They'll call right. again. Yeah. Now it's like you missed my call. How, how come you didn't call me back? Didn't you get my call? So you could pretend back then you didn't get a call. I never got. Right. Call. Yeah. Because like, you didn't. You know, and then as soon as answer machines came, then you became accountable um, to people and answer I, machines and beepers. Oh, I remember I, I started working in tech for a few years. People like people will look at me and go, yeah, you never worked in tech. I was like, no, I was actually making a lot of money working in tech, but I got out of it to be a writer. The worst mistake to ever make if you want to be fiscally responsible, but the greatest mistake to make if you want to have a soul. So want to be immortal. Yeah. So they were like, you have to get a cell phone. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I'll take a beeper and I'll get back in touch with you when I get to a phone, but I'm not getting, I'm not getting a cell phone. I had to finally succumb to getting a cell phone. But I, at the time I called it my electronic leash. It was the last thing I, I wanted on me. And now all I want is my electronic leash. If I walk outside and I don't have my, my device on me, I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> the world's going to end. <laughs> How am I going to function anywhere? Back yeah, then, it, it, I, there's an acute anxiety of not being in touch. <laughs> I know, I, and I hate it. I hate that yeah. horrible anxiety of because because you're always because now we're also beholden to people. Yeah, um, um, you know, and, and no, no, nobody, nobody allows you just to go off in a room and work. Yeah, you know, you, you, you constantly have to give constant. You know, I, I need constant updates. You know, <laughs> and, and and it's getting to the point where. I'm giving, I'm spending more time updating than working. Yeah. I work. I need to work. And those people that are asking for the updates are probably so um, freaked out because they're like, oh, wait, I'm alone in this. I'm alone in the universe. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, like, they're like, oh, crap. I'm alone in this world of chaos. I need to check on <laughs> right <laughs> Reinhardt. Check on I'll check on Reinhardt's work. That'll, that'll <laughs> bring me back. alone anymore. <laughs> I'm going to pull him into my existential existence. <laughs> that'll ground me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about um, when you're screenwriting, because uh, um, uh, I know, I know we got to hit that. I mean, we got to hit that dialogue. We got to hit that action. It's got to be like, it's a tincture. You know, it's, it's so precise, but when you're, when you, in your process, do you have more of the backstory? Do you see a lot? I mean, do you see a lot more what's going on inside the head? Do you have this, do you have a, do you have a lot more going on that you're not putting on the page and then it's just on the page and then you hope it conveys? Yes. I mean, a lot of the stories I've, I've worked on are based on things that actually happened, you know, and, and so what I do is I get this, um, I, I try to, I don't know, this is going to sound crazy, right? Oh, don't worry. Can... We, we sound, we were 45 minutes in and we're crazy. Okay. So we're good. Right. Well, yeah. I, I try to channel those people in my head, 
you know, even if I haven't met them, I try to channel them. I'll look at interviews with them on YouTube or I'll try to get that voice in my head of how they sound, because I know what I'm trying to convey in each scene and how the scene moves the story forward. So I'll, I will try to speak with the voice of that character. And, um, and by speaking with that character's voice, you flesh them out. You almost channel them. I, I did one script about uh, Cotton Club murder. And um, I don't know if you remember, 1983, um, a, a guy named um, uh, Roy Radin came from New York City. He was, he was, Roy Radin was the first guy to take old has-been acts like George Goebel or Jack Carter, Foster Brooks or whatever, and our, 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 you know, Tiny Tim. And he realized, yep, they may be has-beens in the Hollywood in New York, but in middle America, these are still top, these are, these are top attractions. So he would take them all through the country and do these shows, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with, 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 um, with um, um, uh, Fisher, uh, Tony, um, Eddie Fisher, and um, he, he made a fortune at it. But then there was an incident in um, 1980, 81, it was 80, I think, where a woman was assaulted at his mansion after a party. And his, his reputation was ruined because all those Masonic halls and churches that would invite these shows, I want nothing to do with a guy like that. So he had to reinvent himself. So he comes to Hollywood to make movies and through a cocaine dealer named Lainey Jacobs, who was sort of like a female Scarface, um, he meets Robert Evans. And Robert Evans is also down on his luck at that time. And they're going to make the Cotton Club. Mm -hmm. Well, what I did was I went to every location where, well, it was gone, the Regency Hotel, but I went to see where, um, where he lived, Roy Braden lived. I went to see where Lady Jacobs' house was in Sherman Oaks. I did the drive when the assassins took Roy Raiden from Hollywood all the way up to Gorman. I took the Hungry Valley exit and, and, and I went through my head and you just sort of start feeling those people. I know that sounds like very uh, uh, spiritual or whatever, but you just do as a writer, that, that's what you have is, is empathy and you can, you can read people and you can channel them and put them on the page. I never heard Roy Raiden speak before, except in some real short clips on, on YouTube where he's standing with Joey Bishop and they're introducing a show. So I just, you know, you just kind of make his voice up in your head. But with most characters, especially being from Texas, I, I understand how Texas people speak and how they think and the sense of humor they have. Um, so for things in Texas, I'm great, but all the other ones I have to actually do my homework and study and, and, and take the time to learn the characters. If it's a made up story though, if it's a total, totally fictional story, I have to, you know, you, as, as you do, you're a writer, you create those people in your head, you understand them, you, you, you live through them in some ways. Yeah. I remember one time um, uh, an executive made a comment I don't think you understand your lead character. And I said, of course I understand her. I invented her. Yeah. She's mine. She's yeah. part of me. How can you say I don't understand her? I totally understand her. Yeah. I made her up. Yeah. You know, we, we have a certain, we have a certain godlike function as, as writers when you when you do that. Maybe we're just trying to be God. We are Maybe that's to be our God. whole problem. You no, know, because <laughs> we create our own worlds. And, yeah. and then what you have on the page, that is yours and yours alone. Yeah. Until it's either sold or published or whatever. But in the meantime, that lives in your head as yeah. something that's very much alive. Yeah. And, and, you know, the greatest joy in the world is for somebody to read what you've written, respond to it and like it.
I mean, I've always said the three miracles in any screenwriting process is the first miracle is someone reads your script. Right. And, and just to read it. Because usually yeah. you can script out and you get an ocean of silence. Yeah. Uh, n- n- number two is that someone likes it. That that's and that and that's a that's a huge miracle that yeah. someone likes. Yeah. And then the third one is is the greatest miracle of all, which happens very rarely, almost like resurrection of Christ uh, rarity, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> that someone buys it or right. feels that it's putting money into. You know, right. they're paying they're paying for it. Um, and there, there's always that. And then, and then production is the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Oh, and, and then that's just yeah. That, that's that's a once in a lifetime event. But, but <laughs> that's there, the amphibian one, coming out of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's the amphibian and getting legs and developing hunger. That's, that's the one. In, that's the one in ten trillion. But um, uh, there, there's a great adage about business. There, there's only two rules to business. Are there's two keys to success in business? Number one, do you have a great product? Everybody says yes. Yeah. Of course, yes. I have a great product. I yeah. read my script. Number two, do people want to buy it? Well, I don't know. I don't know if anyone wants to buy my athletic shoes or my or my trapeze set or whatever it is you're trying to sell. Yeah, it's a. I mean, when when I try to when I try to tackle it, I I you know I think I've done. It. I I do. I, I used to think, oh, I'm doing it the wrong way, and then I realized, oh no, it's just my process, and everyone has their own processes, and yeah. so I I've come to a little bit of. Um, acceptance that i do things very long and very slow <laughs> but um but when i'm you know if i'm working on something that's just like that's on a screenplay level i have to write it in prose and i have to know i have to i almost have all these short stories for everything and i have mm-hmm. to it's it's almost diabolical and then i can find out what the one line is they say i write everything out in prose as, yeah. as, a, as an outline if i don't have an outline i don't know where i'm going yeah. i can't just start writing a screenplay and the same thing was true of this book i i we had an outline to go by i can't yeah. just conjure up words you know I, I i need to know where i'm going even if it's wrong i'll know halfway through the screenplay well the outline wasn't very good and right. i gotta go back and fix that um and, and with rewrites, of course, which is a big part of what we do, it's easy because the script is already there. You just have to kind of make up some of the characters that yeah. are lacking or those that aren't drawn as, uh, when you're rewriting, those characters aren't drawn as well. Just, you know, make them bigger. Make them like a Vagoda. You know, have <laughs> hey, an actor fish. in mind. Hey, fish. <laughs> make them like fish. Make them like fish. You know what? When I look back at that show, I mean, I have to say Barney Miller was, I think, for everybody of a certain generation, was this seminal show. You know, that because it was eminently entertaining. I think I might have been too young to because I saw it. It was it was on after school. So Mm -hmm. I think it was in syndication by that point. You're right. Um, But I remember. Yeah. You know what it was about Barney Miller? It was it was the tone. It was such it was such a it was such a unique tone. I remember I remember tr- watching it as a kid too. I always wanted to watch it. It yeah, always me intrigued me, but I think it was just the tone and it felt so it was it was a very New York thing which I didn't, you know, I had no concept of New York. I was in yeah, a same, suburb same of San Francisco. It's just like so this felt so otherworldly and yet it was so everyone was so cool. Yeah. It was like these these yeah. There was such a coolness to everybody in the show. It was, you know. 
they wore cool clothes, and I loved Inspector Kruger, the James Gregory character. You know, yeah. he was going, "Oh, guys, what's going on here?" And he wore the old time fedora that you expect a New York City detective to wear. Right, right. I mean, that, that, that was that was phenomenal uh, because yeah, because I grew up in basically Hooterville, you know, from Green Acres, so New York yeah. City seems so far away to me. And when I would watch shows like McLeod, right. <laughs> Or Ironside or Dragnet. That yeah. was the city. And it was yeah. a scary place. You know, yeah. I'll never move to LA. That's a terrifying place to live. People are always getting kidnapped and killed. They're <laughs> taking drugs. <laughs> Everything we know about LA is in the Rockford Files, kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. You know, well, Jim Rockford, it, it's a, I, and then that was that what was the yin and yang of it. See, Dragnet's the, the yin, obviously, scary, or the yang. Scary, uh -huh. LA's scary. You know, yeah. this is the city. I carry a badge. Right. Um, I, with Jim Rockford, he had that mobile home on the beach. Yeah. Now, I want to live in a mobile home on the beach. I, I live in Malibu. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he live in Malibu? Was his, he lived in that, Malibu. Yeah, yeah. And, I live and in and Malibu. He drove, that great, yeah, he drove a great car. <laughs> I want to be Jim Rockford and wear yeah. check sports coats, yeah. you know, and solve cases. It's yeah, exactly. I, I, I gotta watch those shows again. I never liked I never liked the Rockford Files as a kid. And I think it was another tone thing. The tone of the show I didn't like at all. But now mm -hmm. I look at it now and I'm like, oh my god, this show is great. But that but yeah. when I was a kid, for some for some reason, the aesthetic, I was just like, uh-uh. But I could watch Barney Miller and go, okay, I feel okay with this world. Well, because it felt very homey, uh, in yeah. that squad room with those guys. It felt very homey and collegial and it didn't even feel like a real job that they were doing because you never saw the the danger that they faced as police officers <laughs> right, yeah. squabbles, you know and 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 things that went wrong same thing at wkrp in cincinnati it just seemed like a party every day in that radio station that was i mean one of the big reasons i was a radio super uh -huh. when i was a kid when i was six years old i was unscrewing my parents radios to figure out how it works Everything about radio still it's, you know, I know what it is now, but I'm still utterly intrigued by you could just talk into the air. People yeah. will listen to you and, and people will hear you thousands yeah. of miles away. I, yeah. I, I remember I, I was so obsessed with radio as a kid. I, I shared your obsession every Sunday night. There was something on the um, um, I think it was uh, in, in, in Fort Worth. It was KRLD or one of those one of those old stations, those AM stations, maybe WFAA. And it was CBS Mystery Theater, uh, and it was it was introduced by E.G. Marshall, and it was a sort of like it was almost going back in time because this was the seventies, but the but there was it was like old time radio dramas, and oh. I found those because the images in your head are much more lurid and frightening yes. than probably what it would have looked like if someone had filmed those stories. Right. Yeah, and, and I remember there was one where there was a crack in the wall. This, this couple had lost their daughter in a hideous fire and they kept hearing her voice coming out of this crack in the wall in the basement. That scared me so bad. <laughs> As a, I still think about the crack in the wall. Yeah. I'm, you know what? I mean, that, that, that's scary stuff. They, I always I always go back to um, in my head about it. This is when I first, I guess when it first came into my head was when Fight Club came out and they were talking about how in order to get the R rating, they had to pull back on the fight scenes. They had to do some recutting so they couldn't show all the blood that was happening. So they showed the reactions and they put in okay. sound effects. 
Okay, yeah. And they realized that was more horrific than actually showing. Yeah, it's more horrific the, than showing the blood. All you got to hear is a little squish and you see everyone's faces go like, oh my God, that's worse because we're putting the, we're putting the images ourselves together. It's not being presented to us. You know, it's like. Oh, it, it's it, the same in Scarface. I remember the scene in Scarface where they tie the guy up with a chainsaw. Oh, it still and haunts me. And then you me. see Al Pacino's face and blood yeah. spraying and whatever yeah. is happening on screen must be way worse. But because yeah. it, it, it's, I just see his reaction to it. Yeah. And it, it, it's scary. That that scene still I you you just say that and my esophagus just did a little should we throw up now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I still have a visceral reaction. <laughs> well that movie has so many memorable moments. Everybody remembers Scarface. You yeah. either love it or you hate it, you know. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you I I found that I can watch it over and over and I still enjoy it just as much. <laughs> It was because of the art direction, the overtop performances, and oh, seeing Gary yeah. Abraham get hanged from a helicopter. <laughs> I got a, I got a list of movies to watch this week. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's Christmas week. No, I, I'm all excited because um they're showing the apartment at Los Feliz three this uh oh this week. yes and, and I, on the screen it's beautiful it's oh my god. I yeah. have I didn't watch that film until the last like year and a year and a half ago is the first time I ever watched the film. And it blew. I was like, "How did this? This is awesome." I haven't seen yeah, how it did since. This me? How did this escape me? Yeah, I haven't seen it since, and I can't wait to see it on a big screen and just kind of like, because I forgot some of it. I'm just like, "Oh, I just can't wait to sit there and just Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine can just like, you know, infect oh, my and brain." Murray and oh yeah, yeah, everybody's in that thing. You know what? And it's the cast of those great old movies. Who was the guy that played the doctor next door? Remember right. the yes, yeah. all those faces from those movies back then. They're very memorable. Um, yeah. I'll never forget one time I went to see uh, Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen at some theater in, in, in Long Beach or something. Yeah. You, you never forget it. I mean, I don't think they make movies of that scope anymore that you can see on, on the big screen. I mean, they still make them, but they're all CGI. They're either right. Marvel movies or Star Wars. And it's just the magic is just not the same as seeing Ben Hart on the big screen or Dr. Zhivago. That's why why I love living in Los Angeles because there's still a hunger for it and they still show all this stuff at the theaters. And, you know, even at, even at the new Beverly, it's, it's on 35 millimeter or it's nothing. And I'm just like, thank you. (laughs) And a nice to see touch of evil on film Uh, or, or, or Citizen Kane, any of those Wells movies. Isn't it nice to see Notorious on, on 35 millimeter? Oh, yeah. As opposed to walking in on Turner Classic movies. It's a completely different experience. Yeah, it's, and I, it's, that's, I, I'm just, I, it excites me to no end that we can go to movies again. <laughs> yeah. My oh, whole man, life. it's great. I mean, I mean, the headlines today, it's, it, I, I mean, there's this enormous reaction to the new variant. Um. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I, I hope we don't go back to where we were. Yeah. That, that would be a drag. I, I, I got sick of it. At first, COVID was welcome because I was right. sort of like Larry David, the way he used his mom's funeral <laughs> as a way of getting out of everything. It's like, oh, it's COVID. I can't go. I'm sorry. I'd love to go, but you know, I can't make it. Now yeah. it's like, I kind of want to make it. I kind of want to go. I want to be there. I want to have the awkward silence and conversation. I want to get in disputes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like Frankenstein. I want to walk among men again. You know, I don't want to be alone. 
Oh my God. Reinhardt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh yeah. Thank you for having me. Reinhardt Danke on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, It's a Wonderful Time. Next week on the show, we have Tom Benjamin, uh, and that'll be the last show of the year. Looking forward to it. Hey, keep reading, keep creating, keep telling those stories. They mean everything. Have a great week. I'll see you on the last show of 2021 next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.